Let us pray. Loving God, I pray that uh, as I share these things with your people this morning, that you will truly bless them and bring them closer to you and closer to the hope that you provide for each one of us. In your name we ask this. Amen. Can you hear me properly? Well, down a bit further. Okay. Uh, <clears throat> excuse me. When Graham told us that even now on the 8th, 9th of Ab, Lamentations is read in the synagogues, I was moved to tears. Because this reminded me of the 14 years that we lived in North Caulfield, a suburb of Melbourne. We and our neighbours across the road from us were the only Gentiles living in that long stretch of Kuyong Road, as many survivors of the Nazi concentration camps had settled in the Caulfield-Elstonwick area. And the following generation, most of them actually, had chosen to live there as well. No doubt to stay close to their loved ones, but also because of the synagogues, the brilliant Jewish schools, and the Holocaust Museum that had been built there. I often caught the bus along Kuyong Road to go to the city, and each time one or two elderly little Jewish women, and they were, they would seem to, perhaps they'd shrunk or something, but just a tiny little women, uh, would get on at the next stop. Even though their arms were covered, as was their custom, I often noticed their concentration camp numbers that were still there, tattooed just above their wrist. So I wondered how... <coughs> excuse me. <coughs> so I wondered how women like them and their families feel when year after year they hear the Book of Lamentations read in their synagogues, reminding them not only of the terrible suffering that their people have endured throughout the centuries at or around that date, but also of their own unspeakable suffering in Hitler's camps. <clears throat> yes, they would hear the beautiful affirmation of God's grace that we heard earlier, but the rest of the texts makes it clear that God is not, not just like an enemy, but is the enemy, using their enemies to destroy everything, as he had sworn in his anger to do. The writer certainly holds God accountable as he cries out, Look, O Lord, and consider, to whom have you done this? Should women eat their offspring, the children they have borne? as these children died in the street from starvation. It must be doubly painful for the Jewish people if they do believe that their terrible suffering throughout the centuries was brought about by God. So I wonder how the little Jewish ladies react when they hear that God's mercies are new every morning. Do they find hope because the war did end? and the nation of Israel was declared? Or do they hang on like Job, by the skin of their teeth, because they and their families still live with the pain of the Holocaust, and their people are still suffering in parts of the world? It would take faith, great faith, if they can do this, especially as the words following those beautiful verses make it clear that God's love is conditional. Conditional because God is good only to those who wait for him. 
Here are three, two events, true events that, from, that are from more recent times that relate to this. On Boxing Day 2004, the fourth most powerful tsunami ever killed 275,000 people in 14 countries, destroyed 140-odd thousand houses, and left 600,000 people in Acre without their livelihoods. The physical cause of the tsunami was that a 1,200-kilometre section of the Earth's crust shifted beneath the Indian Ocean, and the earthquake that followed released energy that was equal to 23,000 Hiroshima bombs. One American preacher, who I am sure preached often to his people about God's steadfast love, stated that this was God's punishment of the people of Indonesia for their failure to believe in Jesus. What shocked me at the time was his total lack of compassion for the people. The second event is happening right now because of Israel Folau's posting on Instagram that threatened hell for homosexuals and many other sinners. Once again, I'm sure that the love of God is preached often in his church, yet he chose to focus on God's terrible punishment for those on his list, assuming incorrectly that people actually choose to be homosexual. What I find interesting is that people who have no difficulty with God, a God of love bringing about hideous suffering on some of his people generally feel that they are safe. They are at a distance to it. We're okay. There is a sense of self-righteousness there. And somehow or other they ignore Jesus' command, judge not, lest you be judged. The third event happened in 2007 when I was senior chaplain to Canterbury College. I was preparing to write a Christian education program for year 12 students and I thought it might be sensible to find out what the current year 12s thought about it. I was really pleased when about 20 students turned up one lunchtime to have a chat. One bright spark said it would be better off using the lesson to play footy and everyone laughed. But then their comments came thick and fast. And what interested me was that they all agreed with each other. They assured me that they would like to believe in God, but not the Christian God. Well, that shut me up rather fast. I thought, what have I been preaching here for the last 10 years? Um, and so I said, well, why is that? Because that God is cruel. He set people up to fail right from the beginning with all his rules, knowing that they wouldn't be able to keep them. Certainly not all the time. And then when this happens, he rejects them. And they said, including us, that's not fair. And then someone else came in with, yeah, and he's a hypocrite. He tells us he is loving and forgiving and that we should be loving and forgiving like he is. But what sort of loving God could even have the conception of a place like hell, much less created, and send people there 
to suffer in the most ghastly ways forever. We need a God we can trust, they said, a God who loves us unconditionally and is always there for us, no matter what. And I agreed with them. So what do we do with Lamentations and all the other books in the Bible that show God using violence to punish his people for their sins in the hope that they will change, particularly in the Old Testament? Most importantly, we must consider the genres used in the texts. And in Lamentations, there are three different genres working together. As Graham mentioned last week, the overall genre in Lamentations is obviously that of a lament, a grieving, wailing, heartbroken expression of unbearable loss. He also explained that the genre used to express the lament is poetry, beautiful, complex poetry. But undergirding both those genres is one that is used in all the historical books in the Bible, namely sacred history. This means that the history of Israel is told through the perspective of the people's relationship with God. God is the main player. God is the active one. Everything that happens, both good and bad, is interpreted through the lens that lens and attributed to God. Now this is nothing new to us because if you and I share our life experiences with each other and even at times with outsiders, we use that same sacred history genre because the Lord is so much a part of our lives. We see all that happens through the lens of our close relationship with him. Now my apologies to my Bible study ladies who have heard this example a hundred times, but this little story will demonstrate the difference between secular history and sacred history. It is the week before Christmas. You're running late with everything. You have to go to the town centre to finish your shopping, and you know that the chance of finding a car park is zilch. Impossible. But Hope sort of hangs in there, and you turn into a car park. You look around, oh, there's nothing here. And then suddenly, a couple of cars down, someone pulls out. Ah, a fabulous day. And so you just slip into the, the car park, and it's a prime spot just near the shops. When you tell your friends about this, you will start by saying, you will never believe how lucky I was today. However, if you or I were in this situation, <clears throat> we would have asked the Lord to find us a car park even before we left home, let's face it. So when this happens, we thank God for answering our prayer. And when we tell others about it, we say something like this at the start. You'll never guess what the Lord did for me today. Or, you will never know how much the Lord blessed me today. And then go on and tell about finding the car park. So, returning to Lamentations. We can now understand why God is portrayed as the instigator 
perpetrator and perpetrator of the horrors experienced by the people in Jerusalem. God was the one who raised up the enemies for his people and facilitated their attack and the siege and the destruction of the city, the temple and the lives of the children, even the little children and all without pity. The city itself laments. The young and the old are lying on the ground in the streets. My young women and my young men have fallen by the sword. In the day of your anger, you have killed them. And now what we need to consider is why the writer of Lamentations believes that God would demolish, demolish his city and its people without pity. Or as you or I might ask, what have they done to deserve this? And the key word there is deserve. The short answer is that God's people had failed to remember all that he had done for them. And they had failed to keep his laws. They had also presumed on God's favour to them as his chosen people and had thought nothing of worshipping God in the temple one day and persecuting or ripping off the poor the next. The prophets had an awful lot to say about this. As from God's point of view, worship and the just treatment of the most vulnerable people were two sides of the one coin. So throughout the history of the Jews, as shown in the Old Testament, keeping God's law was paramount. You break God's law, God will punish you, whether it's as an individual or as a community, because he wants you to change. Perhaps I could be cheeky here and say, well, God was a bit slow to learn that it doesn't work. But that is rather cheeky, isn't it? But we are the people of the New Testament. And when we look at what things were like in Jesus' day, we find that the, over the centuries, hundreds of man-made rules and rituals had been added as the religious leaders wrestled with the practical implications of God's laws. Things such as the definition of work, which was forbidden on the Sabbath. To divert just for a moment, the Jewish people who lived all around us made sure that they had automatic timers on their light switches so they did not have to switch lights on on the Sabbath. Uh, they often had Gentile uh, housekeepers who would cook the food for them on the Sabbath or they would make their own the day before and have it cold on the Sabbath. So they still will keep these rules. The trouble is these sort of rules became even more important than keeping God's rules, the ones that are summed up in the Ten Commandments and the Love Commandments, which we might think is in the New Testament only, but actually comes from Deuteronomy and Leviticus. Sadly, by Jesus' time, the powerful Pharisees and the experts of the law, who knew all about the Love Commandment but failed to keep it, were teaching the people that if anyone was a Gentile, poor, powerless, blind, deaf, a leper, or even a woman, namely, opposite to the way they were, it was punishment of God 
by God for their sins because they were not keeping the laws. The worse they suffered, the more God was punishing them because their sins were very great. And like the American pastor in 2004, the religious leaders were sure that they were safe from God or safe with God. They were self-righteous. And I'm sure that you know many of the stories where Jesus really confronted them in public, revealing their hypocrisy, which is the sin that Jesus hates most, and their greed and their hardness of heart, showing up the fact that they were actually worse sinners than the ones they condemned. Of course, this undermined their power and authority, which is one of the reasons that they plotted to get rid of him. Today, I just want to draw your attention to a passage from Luke 13. Interestingly enough, it was the one I preached on last time, and that was tough enough. And this is where Jesus, without diminishing at all the seriousness of sin, makes it clear that how much a person suffers is not a measure of their sins. And he totally rejects the idea that God inflicts punishment on his people. This is a paraphrase of, the, of it. There were some present who told Jesus about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mixed with their sacrifices. Jesus said, do not think these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way. I tell you, no. Then he mentions the 18 who died when the Tower of Siloam fell on them and asks, do you think that they were more guilty than the others living in Jerusalem? I tell you, no. Not only were they no worse sinners than the others, but their deaths were caused by the heartless institutional tyranny of Rome in the first instance, and by pure accident in the second. Those poor men were in the wrong place at the wrong time. And Jesus was pointing out that such things happen in life. And so it was for the people in Jerusalem when their enemies attacked them. God did not cause any of these tragedies. Then he speaks of the grace that God was offering to Israel and no doubt thinking of the cross to which his journey was leading where instead of God punishing people for their sins, he would take that punishment himself through Jesus. To make sure that it is perfectly clear that our suffering is not caused by God as punishment for our sins, Luke includes the story about the woman in the synagogue who had been crippled for many years. Firstly, he makes it clear that her infirmity had been caused not by God, but by a spirit. Secondly, when Jesus sees her, instead of seeing her as one whom God is punishing for her great sins, he responds with compassion and heals her. In Jesus, God heals her. Then he attacks the hard, hypocritical hearts of the Pharisees and the leader of the synagogue by raising her to their level as a descendant of Abraham 
and worthy of the same freedom that they enjoyed. And he names Satan as the one who caused her suffering, not God. Now we've been on quite a journey together this morning. Eventually, of course, we are taken to the cross where the demands of the law were fulfilled and grace, forgiveness and hope abound. God is not our enemy. God is our saviour, our hope, our lover and our joy. Which is why we can turn to him in prayer. And just as my year 12 students wanted so much, this is why we can trust him. So, yes, as people who live our lives closer and closer to Jesus every day, we know in our hearts that the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is his faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. Now, instead of a final prayer, because that's sort of summed up there, and to lift our spirits right out of lamentation and to actually remind ourselves that the kingdom of God is full of those who um, muck things up, basically, and also to cheer Stuart on his way so that he can sing it as he drives back to the synod meeting. We are going to stand and sing Matt Mayer's great song, All the People Said Amen. Okay? You get. Hopefully, you'll come up.